everybody, it's Liz, and here's the lineup for the Popping Collars franchise for the month of August 2020. Betsy, Greg, Ricardo, and I talk time travel with a conversation about all of the possibilities and pitfalls of traveling to the past. Take Two features the return of Holly McHale Larson, discussing the influx of live-action Disney princess movies. Betsy and Greg review the film Glory in this month's Going on 30. And also, don't forget, you can vote for our Going on 30 awards by going to our website, poppincollarspodcast.com. Shayna Watson and Gray continue to boldly go through six episodes of Star Trek on The Sacred Six. This month, they're exploring the classic episode, The Devil in the Dark. Finally, and this is very exciting, Ricardo and I are hosting a brand new mini version of the Popping Collars Book Club at the end of this month. Join us for our end of the summer reading suggestions. Thanks for listening and keep those collars popped. I'm Greg. And I'm Betsy. And this is Going on 30, a popping color side project where we storm Fort Wagner. Oh, Greg. With the movies that were nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture 30 years ago. With a quick step. We're storming with a quick step in sand, which is very difficult. That's right. This month... We are looking at the 1989 movie, Glory. I understand you were at Antietam. Yes. A great and a terrible day. I could use your help, Robert. The governor is proposing to raise a regiment of Negro soldiers. I've submitted your name to be commissioned colonel of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. I mean, I know how much you'd like to make Colonel, but a colored regiment? (laughs) I'm going to do it. Dear Mother, the men learn very quickly, faster than white troops, it seems to me. They have risked their lives to be here. They have given up their freedom. I owe them as much as they have given. I owe them my freedom, my life, if necessary. One, nine, one, one... I can knock something down with this. A million loyal readers want to know what happens when the men of the 54th see action. Ain't no dream. We run away slave, but we come back fighting. A million and one. Marching is probably all they'll ever get to do. And they gotta know that nobody's gonna let them fight. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> let you take your regiment out to fight. Yeah! When? Just as soon as I can write the orders. Just turn right on and you let us head on up there where the real fight is. 
should have seen us in action two days ago. We were a sight to see. I have a brief description of this movie. Would you like to hear it, Betsy? Okay, if I must. Robert Gould Shaw leads the U.S. Civil War's first all-black volunteer company, fighting on two fronts, against the Confederates and against the prejudices of the Union Army. Okay, fairly. that That's a pretty fair description. Okay. All right. Okay. Hey, we nailed it first time around. Yeah, good job. Betsy, what is your history with the movie Glory? I remember just having a really emotional reaction to this movie. I did again when I rewatched it. And the diversity inside the black American experience mm-hmm. was present at the time of this movie, which also then foreshadowed, you know, is connected to the diversity of black experience at the time in 1988-89 was was really drew me in and I was very interested in that and wanted to to understand more I could see myself in the Shaw character you know someone who's really trying to make a difference at least that's that's the way I thought of myself in high school and Mm -hmm. and what that might look like so that that was my experience what about you I came to this movie late, not for any particular reason other than the fact that it just didn't, you know, it was just a grown up movie, not grown up in the way that, you know, Rain Man, you know, was in. Please, please. I'm really (laughs) getting, we're getting a really strong picture of movie preferences inside our two households (laughs) here. You are, I mean, we've established you're coming from a very strong cruise background Yes, in your house. big TC. TC yeah, so, so maybe people Central. aren't looking for glory. And... Well, it's not that people weren't looking for glory. This was just like one of those movies that slipped through, I think. Because by the time that I did get to this movie, it was very positive word of mouth. It was people like, oh, you should see glory. You should see glory. And I watched it. I, I think I remember liking it. I remember liking Denzel. That's what I remembered going into this rewatch because I had only ever seen it the one time. So when I was going back into this, I was like, well, I remember liking Denzel in that. Let me fire this up and see if I remember that correctly. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's exactly what I remember. Yeah. Denzel's great. What are your hot takes on the movie to start? So, so my hot take on this movie, you can see it in some of the criticism of this movie Mm -hmm. that why does this movie have to be from Uh, The Matthew Broderick character, the, you know, son of wealthy abolitionist parents from Boston. You know, why does this have to be all from his perspective? Right. You know, would it what would the power have been if if it was from Denzel's perspective or Morgan Freeman's you know perspective? And why does it have to be from Broderick's perspective? You know, even towards even at the end, 
when they're laying their bodies in the mass grave, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be, it's Broderick's character is thrown in first. And then, and then Denzel's body comes in second, kind of leaning on him in almost this paternalistic kind of way. What about I you? have, t- I have two, but they're actor related. Okay. And much lighter than yours. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'm I'm over here with deep thoughts, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so I'm gonna lighten the mood by saying this: I find it hard to take Matthew Broderick ser- seriously. It's a. I feel like it's a poor casting choice because I think that I get what he's going for and uh, I mean he's fine in this movie it's just that he just kind of stands out like a sore thumb and I started thinking to myself like who would I cast in this movie if it wasn't Matthew Broderick would I feel the gravity of this more if I had like a young uh, Charlie Sheen like in this role or like a Val Kilmer in this role like would that have the kind of like seriousness that I'm looking for. Cause Broderick just feels like Ferris Bueller playing civil war. But I think some of that actually lends itself to the character because there is an element of people knowing that he's gotten this gig because of who his parents are. He is young mm-hmm. and this is going to be the guy that you're going to have head up this kind of just for show, you know, troop of black, Union soldiers? I don't know. It's like, I think it works in some moments. So particularly the Antietam battle at the beginning Mm -hmm. when he's scared and overwhelmed, like Broderick does that really well. But then inspiring the men towards the end to take the fort. I don't know. doesn't necessarily feel right. And I don't know that he, his character grew enough for me to follow along. That's just what I was going to say, that he doesn't experience a great deal of growth. I don't find his death, I find it to be tragic, but it's not on the same level as how I feel about his soldiers. My second hot take. I feel like Carrie Elwes could have been a leading man in Hollywood. And I'm not sure what went wrong with his career that made him a character actor. Going into this, he's like super suave Princess Bride Carrie Elwes in this moment, right? Right. Certainly Days of Thunder is coming after this. And that's opposite Tom Cruise. But it feels like he's he just kind of drops off a cliff. Whereas I could see like a world where Carrie Elwes was like a Brad Pitt kind of actor. I find it interesting that as I talk about how the movie is all from this you know, that we have to keep referring to, referring to this white male narrative, that your two hot takes are on the lead white male actors in this Oh, movie. don't worry. I've got, I've got more on, I've got more on Denzel like, and Andre Brower. No, I agree with you. But I that's mean, in the best performances section. Got it, got it. But I think it's more, yeah, I think Carrie Elwes is an interesting person. I mean, we could do a whole Carrie Elwes episode. Yeah, somewhere there's an aging portrait of Carrie Elwes because he just keeps looking the same all the time. But that he really more than other British actors you can imagine of his age, like right. let's say a Colin Firth or a Hugh Grant or a, someone like that, he really shunned the English film BAFTA, all of that, to really come over and make it in the U.S. film industry. Yeah. Back in this time, he has that mustache. He has this very Errol Flynn kind of quality to Absolutely. him. Absolutely. And that's that's what I'm like. I'm wondering, like, how did how did we lose that? How did we lose that Carrie Ellis? And then the next thing you know, he's popping up in Saw movies. It's like, what happened? 
What <laughs> happened, Carrie Elvis? I know. Who did this to you? Could have been a Moneyball, Carrie Elvis. Okay, uh, best scene from the movie. <sighs> All right, I'm going with a two-scene mirrored tandem that happened in the movie. Okay. Okay. The parade scenes. So going to go with the first parade scene when they're in Boston and they're leaving, right? And you see they've got their uniforms on. It's the first time they're in their uniforms and they're out in the street and it's a ticker tape and there's people out and there's flags out and there's women, there's children, black, white, everybody together. And you just kind of check in with each of the characters as, mm-hmm. as the cinematography moves around and just the pride on their faces. And then when you juxtapose that with them going in on the assault on Fort Wagner and they're going through the column of the Union soldiers. again check in with all the characters and this time they've seen stuff this is not to say that in boston they hadn't seen stuff they were all coming from their own experiences but there were they were more of a unit in that moment and so that growth of and i'm always particular to kind of the growth of a team any sort of team mentality that's why i have a weakness for movies like twister which i have a hard time defending but right. this element of them coming together as a unit, but also being people who have grown and changed in war, the way war does that to people. Mm-hmm. But there's also pride. Twister also starring Carrie Ellis. I mean, just the evil, <laughs> the evil tornado hunter. I don't know whether I'm going to pick that as an add-in, because I don't believe that was nominated for an Academy. <laughs> no. Okay. My best scene is the whipping scene. With Denzel. It's a tough scene to watch, but it's the way Denzel holds the moment uh, just with a stare at uh, Matthew Broderick's character. And he doesn't have any dialogue. He doesn't need any dialogue. He can communicate everything that needs to be communicated through a stare and a single tear. And that is the mark of truly great acting. Well, and he is so good at this. Like, I hadn't, when I rewatched it, I'm like, oh, I've seen Denzel do this in other movies. Like, he has great cry face. And mm-hmm. so I, I Googled it, Denzel Washington cry face. I found a website ranking his top five crying scenes from the movies. Would you like to know what the top five are? Yes, please. What are the top five Denzel <laughs> Top five Denzel scenes. Washington crying scenes. Um, number five is from Man on Fire, Bullet uh-huh. Never Lives. Fours from Hurricane. Yes, great movie. Training Day, number three. Wait, what was the crying scene in Training Day? I don't remember it exactly. They call it, the clip they use is called What a Day. Okay. Um, Must be towards the end, maybe. Number two is John Q, one of his monologues from okay. John Q. And number one, Glory. Glory. There it is. There it is. But he's so good at the crying face, but also at the kind of crazy eyes 
Like he's good at, you know, when he, he's smiling at you and he mm-hmm. wants to kind of goad you and draw you into stuff. He's so good at that too. Mm-hmm. His, mm-hmm. his, his, the way he uses his face in his acting. I remember this one I talked back about Melanie Griffith and how she uses her body to act and use, use that in Working Girl to really enhance her character. He does that. And it's the jaw, it's the fierceness in there, mm-hmm. resiliency. Okay, who is your best performance from the movie? Oh well, I mean, we just had this conversation, right? Denzel Washington. He's okay. he's he is he's so good on all levels in this film. You know, down to probably the grossest part of this movie is his feet, and it, and that just to kind of embody what taking your shoe off mm-hmm. when your foot is like that. He's just he's all in. And I just, I love him. What about you? Favorite performance? Yeah, Denzel. He does this thing where he does a lot of different kinds of things with this character. Like, he uh, is a bully. He revels in his bullying. Um, And then he has quiet, depressed moments, too. And in the hands of some actors, that can feel really disparate. But here it feels all of one piece with this character of Trip. Yeah, button up that collar. Sucking that gut. Tucking them big black lips. Lighten your skin. Shrink up that nose. I don't have to listen to this. Where you going, boy? Let me buy. Let you buy. Let you buy. Let me tell you something, boy. You can march like the white man. You can talk like him. You can you can learn his songs. You, you can you can even wear his suits. But you ain't never gonna be nothing to him but an ugly ass chimp in a blue suit. Oh, you don't like that, do you? No. Hmm. Well, what are we gonna do about it? You want to fight me, boy? Huh? What you gonna do about it? You want to fight me, don't you? Don't you? (laughs) It feels like, yeah, this is the kind of guy that can do both of these things. That can have introspective moments and also just flat out tear into somebody if he wants to. It's similar to what we said about Gene Hackman last year. Yeah. uh, Which is that the acting feels effortless. Just feels like a fully inhabited character. And it stands again then in this strong juxtaposition to Broderick's character who does right. not feel fully no. realized. And also that you're, if you're a person of color at any time, you have had to be very malleable in a world that isn't made for you mm-hmm. or where you are threatened. So you have to be ready to be all those people all the time, depending on what is needed in the moment, right? And you see each of the characters, um, you know, our little core group of soldiers that we hang out with in their tent, what that has looked like for each of them. Yeah. Honorable man- mention for me goes to Andre Brower. Oh, he's because so Because I'm a huge Homicide fan. Yes. Do yourself a favor if you can find old episodes of Homicide, watch Andre Brower on Homicide. It's incredible. He's so good. I have some stats about the movie. S-T-A-T-S, about the movie. Woo, woo, woo. It opened on December 13th, 1989. 
Oscar bait. Oscar bait, for sure, yes. Mm-hmm. Here's my theory come into play again. It was not nominated for Best Picture, we said before. I said last time, I think the Academy really likes happy endings. This does not have a happy ending. Did not get nominated for Best mm-hmm. Picture. Even though it was searching for an Oscar for Best Picture. Domestic gross of $27 million, making it the number 42 grossing movie of 1989. Not a hit. I think this found its life on home video afterwards. Yeah, I would agree with you. I feel like I don't feel like I might have watched this in the movie theater. No. No. I feel like I definitely rented this from Blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah. It is the number 3,020th top grossing movie of all time. Oh, wow. Between, here's your triple feature. Triple feature. Between Ricky and the Flash, which hey, was the Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, right, yeah. where she's... Uh, the aging oh, rock star. Yeah, which kind of yeah. reminds me of like Melissa Etheridge or something. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. So Ricky and the Flash and the other Bolin girl, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. Oh, that is, oh, that is not... I mean, it certainly takes you all over the place. Yes, that is a triple feature. Through time? Sure. It has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is probably one of the higher numbers that we've had. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, Roger Ebert, he says, it is a strong and valuable film. 3.5 out of four stars. 3.5? 3.5. He he docked it for something. I've been doing all decimal points. Yeah. for one. <laughs> he docked it for something. I want to think that it was for the Broderick performance, but we'll see. Yeah, probably. Pauline Kale does have a review of this movie. She says, although the script is a conventional melodrama, the director, Edward Zwick, has made something more thoughtful than that. A positive review from Pauline Kale. Zwick is interesting. So I went and looked up his stuff. Who in God's name is giving Edward Zwick this movie at this point in his career? Right? What did he have like, coming into it? He was one of the producers on 30-something in the okay. 80s. He's actually, there's going to be, I learned, I didn't know, an upcoming new production called 30-something else. And it's going to star the kids of the oh, characters gosh. on that show. I know, oh, I know, I'm no. sorry. Total sidebar. I, I, oh, I'm not no. sure how I feel about it. Ugh. But I thought you were going to say 60-something. <laughs> no, it's hard. So he was, he was a director on the series Family. Do you remember that? In the late, late 70s. Television of, yeah. yeah. He did the TV movie Paper Dolls. He okay. did another TV movie called Having It All that starred Diane Cannon. And then really not a lot going on. He did do About Last Night. And that was really the biggest thing he'd done before this movie and i have to say looking at about last night you know relationship one night stand and yes you did have to deal with rob lowe and demi moore on this movie but to then say you know what i'm gonna give you a war movie as your next big project yeah like wow (laughs) that 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 kind of blew me away maybe he knew somebody like matthew broderick's character knew somebody to get a job. This movie won three Oscars. Betsy, can you guess which three Oscars Glory left? I feel like I keep trying to give away things. I am not going for a writing nomination on this one. No writing for this, no. 
score? No, not score. I did like the James Horner, though. Didn't you? Right. Yeah. This is two movies in a row. We've had James Horner. He did Field of Dreams, too. And he also, on this one, I love the choral score with the Harlem Boys Choir. So Mm -hmm. good. So Mm -hmm. good. Uh, Again, I maybe miss, maybe I'm going to need to get a sound bar at some point because I was missing being held in, in the way I think movie music was really doing its job with those big flourishes and low notes yeah uh, this time okay uh so it's a war movie so war movie sound is going to be a like sound editing no you just nailed Direction? it best sound best sound. best sound i don't think they had broken up the category okay. at this point so best okay. sound best sound uh cinematography cinematography yes that's two for two best cinematography so you have one more and it's a big one Oh, 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 Denzel Washington. Yeah, Denzel. Hey. Best supporting actor, Denzel Washington. Yes. Yeah. Uh, nominated for two others besides Best Picture. Okay. Best set decoration. And because it's a war movie, Best Film Editing. Yep. Well, I'm... Um, wanting to say something, so, but I... Go ahead. See, um, I ain't fighting this war for you, sir. I see. I mean, what's the point? Ain't nobody gonna win. It's just gonna go on and on. Can't go on forever. Yeah, but ain't nobody gonna win, sir. Somebody's gonna win. Who? I mean, you, you... Get to going back to Boston, big house and all that. What about us? What do we get? Well, you won't get anything if we lose. But what do you want to do? I don't know, sir. Stinks, I suppose. Yeah. Stinks bad. And we all covered up in it, too. I mean, ain't nobody clean. Be nice to get clean, though. How do we do that? We ain't up and kick in, sir. I still don't want to carry your flag. What is the legacy of glory? So you had kind of touched on this before, and that's kind of what I took away from it, too. I wrote historical trauma. That is sort of the trauma of a nation that gets passed down through generations. We are still living with the trauma of the Civil War. We likely will, as a nation... For a long time, which comes out of the trauma of slavery. It's the, the, you know, I talked about that whipping scene before, and what's compelling about it is that he bears the scars, Trip bears the scars of slavery when he's faced with being whipped for desertion. So he already has the, that sort of scarred trauma burned into him, and then 
it's reafflicted again in the Union Army for desertion and likely will be afflicted again um, later on in life. It's this constant kind of tearing at the scars of this nation over and over again around the trauma of this history. It, it is that juxtaposition of trying to do something new. Mm-hmm. And then that comes in conflict with the way, the old way that we've done things. You know, the yes. flogging was something that just happened in the army. The flogging is also something that happened in slavery. And then you bring in and have a black African-American unit. Uh, and then those things come in contact with one another again. You know, and I had never picked up on that scene before, that element of how we are all dirty yeah. because of slavery. We are all embroiled in it. It is a wound that has not healed. It is, it is that thing that is keeping us from each other and so many of our institutions and communities. And even standing in the precipice and standing in the presence of people who know people who've owned slaves in Broderick's case, and then people who are slaves in trips, you know, in Denzel's case. And we have come many years since that moment, and we are all not clean still. There are times in American history and human history and global history that you realize just how abnormal they are in retrospect. I imagine that the Civil War is one of these times. The Great Depression is one of these times. You know, you you see characters like Abraham Lincoln, and we're passed down the Abraham Lincoln that, you know, has become mythologized. But Lincoln never knew that he was going to be the president that presided over holding this entire thing together. There was no sense that there was a federal government that would that would be able to hold this thing together the way that the southern states had consolidated their powers and stuff but he did it he didn't ask for it probably likely but he did it there are echoes of this in this movie and i think that that's i think that's what's powerful about the message of it is that you know gould shaw he takes on this post but he doesn't really want to he says that to i think it's trip when he's when he asks him to carry the flag and he's mm-hmm. like I don't want to and he's like I know what you mean sometimes you just find yourself at a moment of hit in history where a lot is expected of you and you do it and you look back on it and you realize like well that was really abnormal but it had to be done and that powerful scene of the prayers and the singing and the and the testimony being offered and and when trip gets up to talk you know, Morgan Freeman's character pushing him into that. He says, he says, we men, ain't we? And it reminded me of the civil rights movement when, when men would, black men would walk with a sign that said, I am a man. Mm-hmm. And that, that element of human dignity that is trying to be recaptured or, or found for the first time, particularly in the eyes of white American culture. Mm-hmm. And ain't yeah, we men ain't we? Well, I ain't much about no friend now. Uh, All right. Right. All right. Uh, I never had no family. Killed off my mama. You're funny. Come on, Come on now. 
You're doing fine. Well, I just... Um... Y'all's don't... Y'all's... Y'all's the only family I got. Well, that's all right. And, uh... I love the 54. Right. Right. Ain't much a matter what happens tomorrow. But we men ain't. Yes, sir. Amen. Amen. Yes. And he repeats it a couple of times. And it just took me to that that poster. So. Yeah. You know, I had said something in the Born on the Fourth of July episode about Vietnam movies feel like a struggle for the soul of a nation. Honestly, though, the Civil War, that, the Civil War is the struggle for the soul of a nation. And it should come as no surprise that we f- still feel the reverberations of it in our history today. 30 years from now, we'll still feel the reverberations of it. You know, it's just it's it's one of those things that just clangs against the history of this country. And it's just going to ripple for a really long time. Mm-hmm. That's a wounding. And and when history is not told, truth is covered up and and we're not honest and we don't do the work and we just hope it's going to go away. Like that's that's BS. It doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't help. And so it becomes, you know, as you've seen now, at least you and I can say in the Episcopal Church, watching dioceses and churches and communities claim their past and claim how they were active participants in slavery and active participants in the oppression of people of color and what that looks like, that that is where you can at least begin the healing, not even necessarily find it. But Mm -hmm. get to the beginning of it, because just waiting for the water to clear does not work. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because it's fascinating because we're going to come back to the next part of this history next year when we get to Dances with Wolves. And it transitions from the Civil War to the war for the West and against Native peoples and that's a whole nother conversation about Abraham whole Lincoln, conversation. friends. Oh, no. whole another conversation. That trauma is going to persist. It's going to persist yeah. in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Who is this movie for? What a classic going on 30 question. I love it. I had a hard time with this because I really did feel affected by this as a Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. Try, you know, coming into a time in my life where I wanted to make sense out of history myself, trying to help form my own opinions about things. Um, I don't know. I feel like the, the white perspective of it makes you want to say it's again for white people trying to see a situation, but it's not like Mississippi burning in that way because of the grand abilities of the black actors that are in this film. Right. You know, so that we can talk about 
Andre Brower. We can talk about Morgan Freeman. We can talk about Denzel Washington. We can talk about, um, you know, little unsung um, uh, Jimmy Kennedy, who plays Jupiter Schartz, the, the, the guy with the stutter, right? Mm-hmm. So good, right? He actually went away from acting for a long time, was a teacher in North Carolina, and has now kind of come back into acting in the 2000s. But just those performances were the most rich, rich and nuanced of the film. This movie gives their characters a chance to separate from white culture mm-hmm. in a way that Mississippi Burning did not. So we were able to see inside the tent mm-hmm. and what their conversations were. We were able to see around the campfire when they're singing their prayers, which doesn't involve the white officers. I wonder, though, what do, what was your take on Morgan Freeman? So we just saw Morgan Freeman yeah. in a movie not too long ago. Did you see him as doing something... Very different, kind of the same. Morgan Freeman, as an actor, he becomes this bridge for white audiences. Mm -hmm. And he did that in Driving Miss Daisy. He does it here as being the bridge between the white officers and the black soldiers. Is there something undercurrent in here that him being an older person somehow makes him more approachable? And I don't want to I don't want to put Morgan Freeman in this kind of, you know, Uncle Tom kind of position that it feels like he sometimes gets put into. Right. But I don't know. What do you think? He has some tough dialogue in this movie, especially directed at Denzel Washington. And it does feel like Morgan Freeman is trying to tamp down Tripp's anger. But it it feels like it's done in a way that's like. Um, no, you're getting after Thomas and saying that he's too white, but you need to put aside whatever your black experience is mm-hmm. to become part of this world. And that's tough dialogue to hear coming from Morgan Freeman. Right. Which feels very 80s. Like yeah. that feels very much an 80s perspective. So then to put this up against do the right thing that we talked about. A few months, episodes. Ago, embracing right? blackness. Yeah. Yes. Embracing the anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the righteous anger of the black experience. As far as who this movie is for, I have this as like, I have this pegged as like a ninth grade history class movie. Somebody's face gets blown off, Greg. Maybe it is ninth grade. Okay. Except for the <laughs> face blown off part. Okay. But like this feels like one of those movies that you would watch over the course of like two or three days in a history class. Right? So you're saying this movie was for me in 1980. I mean, I don't know if it was for us, but I can see like some, you know, 20 something teacher who's like, I'm going to show these kids. Yeah, that's right. Something about the Civil War. I'm going to teach them. What is your rating for this movie out of five? I am giving this movie a round number. Oh. Giving it a four. All right. Four out of five. Why a four out of five? Just looking at all the other films here. Some of it, again, is is past reflective impact of this movie. Is how this affected me when I was younger. And how it made me feel. And... I don't know. I think the I think looking at the Rotten Tomatoes and some of the reviews there, it just kind of made me feel like, yeah, you know, I really this then movie comes in behind Do the Right Thing and Dead Poets Society for me. I give it a three point five. 
out of five. But I do have a question for you. Why did you nominate this movie for Best Picture? I don't think I'd watched a ton of war movies when I was this age. You know, I'd, I'd never seen like Apocalypse Now or, you know, really much that had war in it. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think also being a part of a generation that has never gone to war mm-hmm. in that kind of way, right? Um, some people may talk about and have started some language, you know, as we're recording this during the coronavirus pandemic of it being an experience that, that is being lived through globally, nationally, in ways that wars do that when you talk about trauma, that I think that when you don't live through something, there is, at least for me, a historical fascination with what that looks like. And to be offered, as you said, this feeling of being behind the scenes mm-hmm. and seeing the diversity of the Black experience, at least from the this writer's perspective and from the historical research around this film, I think that is that is why I w- wanted to nominate it. Because it still stuck with me. I could still recall scenes as I watched it. And that, you know, I saw it have an effect on my own child in the mm-hmm. same way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, movies that stick with you. I mean, that's honestly, that's the reason we're doing the show. It's because 30 years is about as long as necessary to know what movie's going to stick with you. Yeah. What What is our next film? <laughs> the Daniel Day-Lewis Tour de Force. Tour de Force. My Left Foot. My Left Foot. The story left. of Christy Brown. Is that... There's like a full title. that It's not... It's My Left Foot colon something else. But uh, My Left Foot is our next movie. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, I have never seen My Left Foot. Have you? I don't think so. Yeah. So this will be a first And time. I had a huge crush on anything Irish at this moment, too. And I couldn't bring myself, I guess, to watch this film. I wasn't. Like, I was a, like, "Ooh, the commitments!" Or you too, and I love it all, and I'm Irish, and I'm really embracing it. I know for a fact that I was not a Daniel Day Lewis person until I remember seeing Last of the Mohicans in the theater. It's just super intense, very intense. But like he, unbearable lightness of being, Ugh, all of that stuff. Like Daniel Day Lewis was so outside of my. He was not making movies for 15-year-olds. No. (laughs) Not at all. He still isn't. Well, he's not making movies at all now, but Phantom Thread is not for 15-year-olds. Second break. He's he's too busy being Arthur Miller's son-in-law and like not doing anything like that. Betsy, thank you for getting new shoes from the Quartermaster with me. I would I would love to have roughed up that quartermaster storage. That would have been felt really good. That guy was a jerk. Ugh. And then he was in office space. I was like, that's the office space guy. <laughs> Being a jerk office space guy. 